This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... Good heavy metal song is like a good horror movie. It's intense. You know, it's unpredictable. You know, I discovered horror at a very young age, but um, I was terrified by it. When you're doing the knife fight from West Side Story, those were real switchblades, and every once in a while, you get cut. I grew up adoring horror films, adoring anything occult-driven, ghost stories. Well, you know, I had a bad childhood. That real-life darkness came to me way too early in my life. Why is it that a lot of horror movie fans and even metal fans are attracted to this dark stuff? You know, the older we got, just the more extreme we wanted to be and the more extreme things we wanted to be into. I was scared shit. I was like, this is like a horror movie. And I wanted more of it. I was a little too young to attend NR-rated movies. Fortunately, hopping from one theater to another in a suburban mall in Rockville, Maryland, was way easier than getting away with underage drinking. So, after buying tickets for Back to the Future on a slow Wednesday after school, my friend John and I took our ripped ticket stubs and walked towards the theater showing the Italian splatter movie, Demons. Hey, Back to the Future is the other direction the ticket taker told us, pointing towards the correct door. Startled, but determined not to get stuck in some PG movie that starred the guy from Family Ties, we walked towards the theater the usher had pointed to and hit the bathroom on the way. How long should we stay in here? John asked. I don't know, man. I'm not a movie detective. We wondered if the dude would call our parents or something if he caught us sneaking into demons. Worse, we feared we would miss the movie. After about five minutes, we exited the bathroom and looked behind us. The coast was clear, so we casually sauntered back towards the door with a lit sign that glowed with the word demons, like a beacon beckoning us to the gates of hell. The previews were already on as we scurried to the front of the nearly empty theater. We nervously watched the hinged doors to see if Mr. Killjoy was following us. He wasn't. I was especially excited about Demons because this was the kind of action-packed bloodbath that magazines like Fangoria raved about. It was supposed to be way weirder and gorier than the mainstream horror hits like Friday the 13th and Halloween. It was basically about these people who get tickets to a free spooky movie. One of the customers touches a mask on display in the lobby, which cuts one of her fingers and, of course, turns her into a bloodthirsty demon. When she attacks her friend, he too becomes a vain, fanged beast, and so on. The kill scenes up the ante on normal machete to the next cinema fair. There were vein-bursting demon claws, eye-gouging that left eyeballs hanging, and bites that tore flesh to bits. Demons, I would later learn, was written by giallo horror master Dario Argento and directed by Lamberto Bava, the son of the legendary Mario Bava whose movies included Hatchet for a Honeymoon and, of course, Black Sabbath, 
the film that launched a metal legend and legacy after some guys in a band in Birmingham decided to change the name of their group to the title of the film. There was definitely a metal vibe from the opening credits. Demons was shot in a Berlin rock club, the Metropole Theater, which still books bands. The movie lobby in the film contained posters from the ACDC concert flick, Let There Be Rock, and the film score for Demons was written by Claudio Simonetti from the trippy Italian prog band Goblin, whose influence can be heard in Hawkwind, Nine Inch Nails, and Tool, among others. Also, Goblin did a great job working on pulsing atmospheric soundtracks for Dario Argento movies, including the masterful Suspiria and Profondo Rosso. As much as I loved the ominous Simonetti score, what nailed me to my seat, besides all the gore, was the rest of the soundtrack. Ten minutes into Demons, the bracing guitar chords of Motley Crue's Save Our Souls from Theater of Pain blasted out from the speakers. And unlike most rock songs and movies, which air for 15 to 30 seconds from a car radio or during a fight scene, the crew track continued for more than a minute. Even cooler was the director's inclusion of almost the entire proto-thrash song, Fast as a Shark, by Accept. I had heard metal used before in movie soundtracks, of course, and there would be way more in the future. But there was something special about the gritty foreign feel bad dubbing, and gratuitous gore of demons that felt more metal. Fuck, man, that was over the top, I marveled as we exited the theater. And dude, hearing Accept in there was awesome. Man, what are you talking about? What's with you, replied John, who wasn't as entertained by demons as I was. Seriously, you're fucked up. That was some sick shit. I laughed off his comment, but I thought about it later. It was some sick shit. And that's why I thought it was cool. The movie took violence and bloodshed to a level that rivaled films like the bloody sequel to Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and Reanimator, a Stuart Gordon movie I took a date to once and was slapped later when I brought up the shocking scene about a man using a decapitated head to perform oral sex on a screaming woman. I still had a lot to learn about dating. And at that point, I hadn't even heard of other gore classics like Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox. I just liked seeing how extreme things could get. Was I fucked up for liking it? Was I fucked up for my all-consuming passion for two of the darkest, most aggressive forms of entertainment, metal and horror? Was I destined to be one of those people who seems well-adjusted, and then one day they snap, and after doing a bunch of horrible stuff, their neighbors tell the TV news, he was pretty quiet and kept to himself. He always seemed like a nice man. Sometimes he took out my garbage. Pantera and down frontman Phil Anselmo relates to my bloodlust and says, horror movies and extreme metal are outlets for people who don't deny death, like much of Western society and accept that life can be tragic and painful in some pretty awful ways. The movies and music are ways to flip the middle finger to both mainstream society and the Grim Reaper. I think it's just how you're born. I don't think it's uh, something that comes from a single episode or, 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 or something tragic necessarily. I think it's just born with a love of the darker sides of life because they are part of life 
man, the human beings are grotesque over history. Take a look at the wars and atrocities from any history book you want. I mean, the morbidity is there. We are human. You know, we're imperfect and lethal, you know? Uh, and it's a shame, but I think there's a lot of truth in because we have these morbid attributes, let's just say. Watching a horror film, it, it's a dopamine hit to the to that part of you, that darkness that's in us. And it's a way of, I guess, working out that muscle or whatever the hell it is without committing any fucking atrocities yourself, you know, without actually having to fucking go see it for yourself. You can pop in a flick. So I think it's a, dare I say, healthy, you know. Hi, and welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal the show that takes a deep dive into the history, lifestyle, and culture of metal to tell some of the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and in this episode, we'll take a look at the relationship between metal and horror. Ever since Black Sabbath named themselves after a horror movie and started writing dark, doomy songs that buzzed with menace and defiance, fans and creators of scary films and the blossoming genre that would eventually be called metal made a simultaneous beeline into the darkness and began merging in fantastic, sometimes horrifying ways. Listen in as Alice Cooper explains how he invented horror rock and Rob Zombie and Dee Snyder talk about their entry into the world of horror movie making. We'll also hear from Metallica's Kirk Hammett, who reveals where his blackened streak comes from and how he pacifies the demons within. And we'll look into death metal and how a subgenre of horror freaks combine their favorite subjects to raise the bar on thrash and create some blindingly fast and gore-drenched music. So heat up some popcorn, dim the lights, and get ready for our latest creature feature. In the introduction to his short story collection Night Shift, Stephen King wrote about scary stories, fear, and death. And the same principles apply to horror movies and metal. These are Stephen King's insightful words, not my meandering rambles. Quote, All our fears add up to one great fear. All our fears are part of that great fear. An arm, a leg, a finger, an ear. We're afraid of the body under the sheet. It's our body. And the great appeal of horror fiction through the ages is that it serves as a rehearsal for our own deaths. End quote. Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett basically agrees, but he doesn't find horror to be something to dread. It's more a celebration of a darkness before the light, or an exciting nightmare we're happy to experience before we wake without a scratch. Good heavy metal song is like a good horror movie. It's intense. You know, it's unpredictable. It's, it has a lot of the same feelings of, like, you know, the darker things of, in life. When you hit that tritone, you're not thinking of candy canes and, and, and Santa Claus or anything. You're thinking of, uh, like, you know, pumpkins and witches and bats. And, and you know, when you, when you hit that, that uh, 
you know, that, that harmonic minor scale, you know, you're, you're not thinking you know, about flowers or, you know, altruistic, uh, uh, you know, the altruistic uh, 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 aspects of, of humanity in general. You're thinking about the end of the world and, and, and doom and gloom and, and total Armageddon. It's just a natural reaction, you know, your, your brain just like gets that feeling. And, you know, like myself, there's a lot of people out there just uh, when they hear that, that darkness, you know, that, that, that uh, gloom, it's just, it's, it's cathartic. It feels good, you know, it feels like uh, you can get to the darker parts of your life and experience them without really experiencing them. Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian, whose mom introduced him to horror practically before he could speak, and whose band worked with Buckethead on the instrumental Kick-Ass from the 2001 John Carpenter movie Ghosts of Mars, loves the catharsis and excitement of metal and horror, and considers them to be two sides of the same coin. Was there a point where you, you saw some sort of connection between this music you suddenly heard, maybe the first Sabbath or uh, Priest down the line, and, and horror? Did you, were you like, whoa, these are two, or were they just two things you liked? The first time I heard the first Sabbath record was at my uncle's house and he puts it on and it starts with the, the storm and the thunder and then the fucking devil's riff comes in for the song Black Sabbath. I was shitting. My, I was scared shit. I was like, this is like a horror movie. And I wanted more of it. I was scared and excited at the same time. And uh, and from that point, it kind of was like I started, <laughs> everything I was listening to slowly started to change. You know, from like, you know what? I love the Jackson Five, but uh, can can we get some like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin up in here now? <laughs> Twisted Sister frontman Dee Snyder also discovered horror when he was young, but at first he had a very different reaction to the genre than Scott had experienced. You know, I discovered horror at a very young age, but. Um, I was terrified by it. I was that scared crybaby kid, you know, and then oddly I felt drawn to it though at the same time, afraid of it and then drawn to it and then creating it. And now it's very difficult to scare me, Uh, you know, but I've been like that with a lot of things in my life. I've always found that there's an inextricable link between metal and horror. Fans of both often embark on an unholy quest to find the sickest, most extreme stuff. And they tend to be obsessive, Some death metal fans only listen to death metal and grindcore. The faster, the more extreme, the better. Horror connoisseurs can watch grisly movie after movie without flinching, which explains the mass popularity of subscription services like Shudder and Screambox. In addition, while fans of both are welcome in their own scenes and happily cohabitate, they generally don't fit in with mainstream society. Rob Zombie, a jack of both trades, who spends more time juggling projects than he does pontificating about why he likes things that go bump in the night, was fairly insightful about how and why he was drawn to horror and outsider music. You know, and I'm sure every kid can relate to it. Any kid that lives in a small town, and if you don't wear the exact right clothes and your main passion in life isn't Little League and you don't want to grow up to do this, you want to, you're, in a, you're, in, you're fucking free. Right. But for some reason, you know, you don't make a choice when you're in kindergarten that you want to be the weird kid. You're just like, why do you just see everything different? Yeah. You know, every kid loves baseball and you hate it. 
why? Why? How did that happen? Huh? You know, or like, and you know, like, why do you want to watch movies instead of play baseball? When I got into like Alice Cooper, I was so young. I was like, this is cool. Look, monsters and black widows and spiders. I was into it. But the high school kids were into it. Were like, man, this is fucking kick-ass music to smoke dope to. But I, my brain wasn't there yet because I was in second grade, you know. Since Alice Cooper was the first major musician to bring a theatrical horror rock show to the masses way back in psychedelic 1969, and continued with a more amped-up hard rock version through the decades up until the present, it's worth taking some time to hear from the legend about his aesthetic and approach, which has influenced countless bands, including Rob Zombie, Kiss, King Diamond, Mayhem, and Guar. Vincent Damon Furnier, a.k.a. Alice Cooper, grew up in Detroit and suffered from a series of childhood illnesses. So instead of spending his time on the playground running around, he went to the movies where he could sit in a chair and be entertained and educated in the fantasy world of cinema. This included dramas, comedies, sci-fi, and of course, monster movies. Early, early on in my life, I saw, I used to go, when we were little kids in Detroit, we would go see the creature from the Black Lagoon and the thing that wouldn't die and it came from outer space. You know, all black and white movies on Saturday. And everybody likes to get that certain shock of horror. It's like getting on a roller coaster where you know it's going to be scary, but you know it's going to bring you back safely. And I think that's that's the idea behind horror and and people going to horror movies. When he formed the Alice Cooper Band, he knew he had to compete with popular 60s groups who had major chart singles, including The Doors, The Beatles, and The Who. So Alice drew from his love for movies to create a theatrical spectacle that was part rock concert, part Broadway, and part horror show, and would stand out like a slit wrist. Interestingly, his heavily influential makeup came in a large part from the Betty Davis movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, in which Davis wears caked-on makeup, including dark eyeliner smeared under her eyes. I always liked the idea of Alice being a villain. And he'd be a little bit, you know, Dracula, a little bit Basil Rathbone, a little bit Zorro, a little bit, you know, all these sort of, all these classic characters all rolled up into one. And then we, we sort of put the exclamation point on that with Ballad of Dwight Fry. Um, and Dwight Fry, of course, played Fritz in the original Frankenstein, and he played Renfield in Dracula. And so I always thought that he deserved to be named as much as Karloff and Bela Lugosi. He was the scariest thing in both movies. With a lot of planning and a bit of improvisation, Alice staged skits and sketches he performed during the show. He quickly became the shock rock king, and not just because he wore a boa constrictor around his neck, swung an axe into female mannequins, did suggestively violent things with baby dolls, and, when emulating a scene from West Side Story, choreographed a switchblade fight, which sometimes went a little wrong. We had great theatrics up there, and uh, half of the blood I would say was, you know, fake blood. The other half was actually blood. (laughs) Because when you're doing the knife fight from West Side Story, 
those were real switchblades and every once in a while you get cut you know uh there were many times where i've had like i got hit in my nose and it was bleeding all the way down and everything like that just because i was in the wrong place at the wrong time but if that happens you keep going because it, it looks great on stage we that's not supposed to happen but it does you know i but i mean i love the absurdity of it I loved the absolute absurdity of it where you set an audience up. They think something's going to happen and something else happens. And that's where the shock comes in. Over his 52-year-long career, Alice Cooper has had a long string of hits, including I'm 18, School's Out, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and Only Women Bleed. But to many, Cooper is best known for staging a very realistic-looking execution of Alice at every show. He's been electrocuted, hung from a noose, and most famously decapitated with a guillotine, which to this day is both dangerous and pretty mind-blowing. You make the guillotine look really real. You don't make it look schlock. You make it, you know, that's the one thing that when that head comes off, people actually go, wait a minute, did that really happen? You know, and I've always kept it like the guillotine, that's a about a 30 pound blade and it's a metal blade and it only misses me by about eight inches so there is the element of it could actually take my head off and that if you keep that in the show it's sort of like going if you go to the to the circus and there's a guy in a cage with a bunch of tigers and he's got a whip in a in a chair at some point, one of those animals might go totally crazy, knock the chair out of his hand and kill him. I, 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 or the person on the tightrope up there. You know, the, you want the audience to have that feeling that this could be the night. This, this might be it. You know, you, you can't just make it so that it's totally safe. The Alice Cooper show was never safe. The, everybody in my band have gotten stitches. In a future episode about demolition and destruction, we'll hear Alice talk about some of the times pranks backfired and he was nearly killed. Twisted Sisters D. Snyder was also a fan of monster movies as a kid, and has incorporated horror themes into his music since the mid-80s. In 1998, he transported the sinister and sadistic character Captain Howdy from the Stay Hungry mini-epic Horrorteria, The Beginning, into the screenplay he wrote for the 1998 horror film Strangeland. The movie was directed by John Pipelow, and in the film, Dee played the captain, a serial killer and predator who recruits teenage girls from internet chat rooms. The movie remains a cult favorite among horror and metal fans, some of whom take their love for Strangeland to strange, obsessive levels. I mean, I get these girls who... Uh, who come up to me at these conventions and stuff, and they go, I love Captain Howdy. He's like, I would marry him. And I look, I say, are you fucking insane? I'll, I'll say those exact. I said, he's not a nice guy. <laughs> he's not, a, he's not date material. He's, a, he's not a, he's, he's not the dream catch. He doesn't, he only cares about himself and he only wants to hurt people. What happened to you? You know that you that this is what you literally think is, is is attracts you. So those, but they're they're the exception, not the rule. And I I mean I remember with Strangeland, when my wife read this, I she was my she was my first uh, person who hears things and reads things, and 
and she she read the script and she came walking downstairs and she's holding the script in one hand like down on her side almost like i don't know like it was a dirty diaper um and she goes you want to tell me something and i said what are you talking about she goes what the fuck is that i mean she lost her shit man she said who am i fucking married to what the fuck and she was just she really was freaked out and i i I remember saying those are my nightmares not my dreams and she said what i said i was picking i was writing things that terrify me i'm not i'm not afraid of dying i'm afraid of suffering and burning alive is the worst way i could think of dying I said, that's not my, those are my nightmares. And once she said, oh, okay. So yeah, so as a creative, I'm trying to figure out, well, how do I scare myself? You know, and, 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 you know, and then it goes from there. In addition to releasing a new ultra heavy solo record, Leave a Scar, which was produced by Hatebreed's Jamie Josta and features a duet with Cannibal Corpse vocalist, George Corpse Grinder Fisher, Dee is currently wrapping up a new film, My Enemy's Enemy. He won't reveal the plot, but he says it will appeal to fans that are into real terror, not jump scares. He says it will be groundbreaking and change the horror genre by avoiding the tropes and inventing new, nastier rules. I call it lowering the bar. Uh, you know, I say, I say, yeah, 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 I really lowered the bar on this one. Uh, my new movie, My Enemy's Enemy, I, I dug a hole in the ground and I dropped the bar in, all right? Uh, and yeah, it's like, how do I get a reaction to people? Because people become numb, you know, and you're trying to get that reaction. Rob Zombie started out his career with the B-film inspired theatrical metal band White Zombie before going solo and taking his horror and sci-fi damaged ideas to the stage. Live, Zombie has featured musicians caked in mud, a member who drinks and spits blood from a transparent guitar, projected shots of occult imagery and campy horror film snippets, and created life-size monsters and aliens to dance and wander the stage. He gives major props to Kiss, and mostly Alice Cooper, who once described Zombie's live band as a tattoo. I always said, I said, their, their, their music is like a hard rock tattoo. That's what, this is what I really come up with. It's got this great, it's great to look at. It's, it's got a great sense of humor to it. It's got a certain amount of pain to it. It's got, you know, I said, it's really like a tattoo because it's a musical tattoo. <laughs> That's a way to put it. And, and, you know, I can't say that about anybody else out there. Well. Zombie likes the idea of being a theatrical tattoo that means something different to everyone. Some think it's campy. Others view it as evil. And that's just how he wants it. Like his idol, he never wanted to be told what not to do or be limited to staying within certain boundaries. Why isn't there a show you can go to where there's gonna be 60 foot flames and giant robots coming out and go-go girls? Mm-hmm. Why can't I go see that? Why? Because no one's doing it. Well, I guess then I don't have to do it. I never want to be stuck like, like yeah, it could be shocking way, but then it could be funny for a minute, but then it's this and it's, I never want to be paint myself into a little corner right. of this is the emotional range that you can display or you blow your image. Having directed numerous videos for White Zombie and his solo band, Rob started his career as a screenwriter, director, and producer with the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre-style movie House of a Thousand Corpses. He followed two years later with much of the same cast, 
the ones who survived, in the more character-driven freak fest, The Devil's Rejects. The film was well received and displayed Zombie as a fresh horror film talent, kind of a cross between Quentin Tarantino and Toby Hooper, or John Carpenter. For more than 15 years now, he has been switching off between writing albums, touring, and making movies. To date, he has directed seven films, including the most recent Three from Hell, which came out in 2019, and wrapped up the Rejects trilogy. Almost all of Zombie's projects have been horror or monster movies, but he's open to working on anything that's good, and unlike the creators of torture bloodbaths like the Saw and Hostel films, Zombie strives not to shock, but to create something memorable with atmosphere and a strong storyline. Just shocking for the sense of shocking. It's not like entertainment, it's not art, it's not anything. It's just all the great universal films that you watch now, you're like, God, look at the fucking art direction. These films are incredible. They probably shocked the audiences, but they weren't shocking. Yeah. You know, we will step off the bus now, we see a little kid and I slap him in the face. That'll be shocking, but do you want to see it a couple more times? Will that live on forever as a great moment in my life? No. <laughs> you know, it'll be shocking to say the least. But, um, like, people will pick on parts that are shocking, like in Reservoir Dogs, where they, they think they saw him cut the cop's ear off. But that was just in the context of a great film. Right. You know, shocking moments out of the you know, little blooper reels of planes crashing at air shows. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com Since the 70s, metal has relied heavily on the same textures, tension, and intensity as Hollywood horror movies, even when it was made by bands as far away from California as Dorothy was from Kansas. And kids with healthy imaginations and an interest in cinematic roller coaster rides have eaten it up. Just ask Phil Anselmo, who gets equally excited about a Venom album as he does for a movie like I Spit on Your Grave. I grew up, and, I'm, and I say this, knowing that there's millions of people like myself. I grew up adoring horror films and adoring anything occult-driven, ghost stories, television shows, from Twilight Zone to Night Gallery to Boris Karloff's Thriller. Man, it goes hand in hand because the subject matter that revolves around a lot of heavy metal lyrics are either derived directly from horror films or, you know, look at a, look at someone like King Diamond, you know? He's basically creating horror stories and horror themes, you know, throughout all of his music. You know, he's, he's based his whole everything into his, his music. It's kind of like rolled into one. And then, you know, 
gosh, you know, you look at, you know, we're talking about King Diamond, we're talking about Merciful Fate, we're talking about 1982 or 81, something like that. And look at what we got, you know, we got Ghost today, we got extreme metal bands like Portal, absolutely have grab death metal and graphic horror, even Lovecraftian horror, and, and combined them brilliantly. And as you say, man, they're compatible, they go together. The style of extreme metal that is most directly compatible with horror is unquestionably death metal. For Steve Moore, who has composed film scores for Mayhem, Camera Obscura, and Ted Bundy American Boogeyman, and who also plays in the horror-inspired band Zombie, being introduced to groups like Morbid Angel and Deicide were important steps towards his musical writing career, but was also a way to rebel against his Christian upbringing. In addition to embracing the music as the antithesis of religion, he viewed the music as a reflection of the political, ecological, and social traumas of the 90s. I find that there definitely is a synergy there because it's it, it's just stuff that deals with, you know, the darker side of 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 life, you know, uh, you know, especially back then, like the lyrics to most like death metal or metal records were really gloom and doom kind of stuff, you know, uh, and and it and it tied in really, really well with like the sort of like uh you know, post Cold War horror that we were witnessing, uh, you know, come around in the late eighties and the nineties where, uh, you know, there, there was just these, uh, yeah, this, this, these relentless horrors that, that no one could stop. Many pioneering death metal bands, including Florida's death and San Francisco's possessed named songs after grisly horror movies and wrote lyrics that summarized the plots and two of the star directors they adored were Lucio Fulci and George Romero, both of whom heavily relied on ahead-of-their-time gore effects created by Germano Natale and Tom Savini, respectively. One of the most popular death metal bands today, Cannibal Corpse, play insanely fast, rhythmically intense music, with roaring vocals that are more or less indecipherable. These days, that's nothing new. But back in 1988, when they started, they were an anomaly. Their artwork was more graphic and gruesome than anything any other bands from the day were creating. While he's a fan of the band today, Dee Snyder originally thought Cannibal Corpse were talentless and offensive. I got the first Cannibal Corpse album, and this may be the song we're talking about, but it's, we're talking about f- fucking, a, a fucking nuns in the ass while you're, you're stabbing them with a knife. And and I was like, this isn't metal. This is this isn't this isn't imagery. This is not like you know uh, the number of the beast where you have a dream and you're you know and and the dream this happens in the dream. This is like very vivid and very uh, very like you said descriptive and literal. There was nothing creative about it in my mind. It took a while for me to accept that it had its own place, you know. Cannibal Corpse drummer Paul Mazurkowicz says the band members have always sought out the most insane and outrageous entertainment they could find, both in film and music. So when they started writing their own songs, it seemed natural to strive to be the fastest and heaviest band around, 
and the lyrics just seemed to fit with the music. When you're an early teen and you're still like, you know, 11, 12 years old or whatever, and the movies that are out are like Halloween and, you know, pretty tame in comparison to the, the Argentos and, you know, the Fulci movies of sorts and all that. So, um, but it, it, right, you just seem to want to gravitate to, to the more extreme, you know, and that's definitely what we did. Um, but definitely it was it was a push forward into, in, in wanting more gore and more intensity as, you know, know you got into it and has things progressed like i said age wise and um you know along with how the music went right you know the older we got just the more extreme we wanted to be and the more extreme things we wanted to be into a good student who grew up in a well-adjusted family music and film journalist brian reisman was drawn from a young age to monster and horror movies and by the time he was 12 was watching friday the 13th Not long after, he became obsessed with metal. Like me, he can't really specify what drove his obsession with extreme entertainment. I don't know. I had this morbid fascination. It's not like my life was so dark, you know, Um, and I've wondered that. And even I've talked about it. I've wondered why is it that a lot of horror movie fans and even metal fans are attracted to this dark stuff? Because not all of us. I don't think most of us have lived that kind of an existence. Certainly most of us have not lived. None of us have lived through a zombie apocalypse, but it's fascinating anyway. Um, I don't know. And I, and maybe I came to the realization of this. I remember years and years ago, I was dating somebody who loved, they loved all those housewife shows. And, uh, so I couldn't stand the housewife shows and she really wasn't really a fan of my horror movies. I'm like, my, my snarky attitude was, yes, but the people that annoy me in your shows die in my movies. <laughs> horror author and metal devotee, Jeremy Wagner, who plays in the Chicago death metal band, Broken Hope, also comes from a good family yet is into some of the sickest movies, books, and music. For him, the fascination doesn't have as much to do with where he came from as, well, where he might be going. I've always said that when, when asked, um, you know, why, why are you so fascinated with death and writing about it and these horrible things? And when it comes to death, I... I fascinated because I always say no one knows what the afterlife is really like, but you know, what if, what if uh, there's something after this, you know, when, when we pass on, I mean, because the way my mind works again, with my overactive imagination, I think of things like, well, you know, we, anyone that, that that's living right now, we came from, you know, we won the lottery, first of all. We were one among one billion sperm that fertilized an egg and we turned into a human, right? So um, it's like, that's where we came from on, on a molecular level, you know, and here we are. Now, if you take a step back and think about that, who's to say there's nothing beyond this when, when you die, this energy you have and whatever. We came from nothing. Who says you can't pass on your energy? Who knows if there is another place? I'm just saying, you know. Right. So, and these are the things that Jeremy Wagner thinks about. And, you know, I don't have an answer at all to any of that. But um, it's, uh, we, we don't know. 
One giant collector of monster movie memorabilia, who was definitely drawn to metal and horror as an escape from his unpleasant early home life, was Metallica's Kirk Hammett. He's surely not the only metal icon from a dysfunctional background, but he's brave enough to admit that the trauma he experienced in his youth drove him to aggressive music and dark subject matter. Well, you know, I had a bad childhood. I experienced a lot of, a lot of darkness early on in, in my life that I, I probably shouldn't have been exposed to. A lot of, like, unfortunate things happened to me as a, a child. Um, and, and so that real-life darkness came to me way too early in my life. And, and um, you know, it's just one of those things... Uh, it was an experience that kind of just blew a hole, a hole open in my psyche. <laughs> and, um, you know, I experienced things a little bit uh, uh, earlier than I, I, I should have as a child. And, and you know, dealing with all those emotions as, as an adolescent and then a teenager and then as an adult, definitely... You know, I didn't know how to process any of that stuff, and, and playing music was very cathartic and very helpful for me, and it was also a way for me to express a lot of those feelings instantly. So, you know, again, my improvisation was like sitting there and just playing licks and solos just by myself in my, in my, my bedroom as a kid, even though it didn't sound you know, very good. I felt all of it. I felt all of it. Uh, and and it, it, it basically, guitar playing and music saved my life. And, and it, it was, it was, it was, um, it was therapy, a, a type of therapy for me. It made me feel better when I, I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't feeling great. You know, and I, I was so young, and I, I, I didn't understand why I was feeling this way, and I didn't, I didn't know this is because of you know circumstances and situations. I, I didn't put all that together. I just knew that guitar playing helped me feel better and calmed me down. You know, as an adolescent, as a teenager, as an adult, up to like just now, now. I mean. When I'm re I have a lot of anxiety, and you know, I'm prone to depression, like you know, most people, my guitar helps me through all that, and it just it puts me in a headspace that's just better than the headspace I was in like two seconds two seconds before, literally. And I feel so fortunate that I have that in my life. Anselmo also turns to music to bring him out of dark nights of the soul. But these days, he's equally placated by a good Giallo movie. I will go through bouts of depression. And it, it's been that way since uh, I was a kid. And it only got worse with, as the injuries mounted. And I knew my limitations and ugh, ugh, it's frustration. And nothing's going on. Nothing. Bad. Nothing good nothing can be going on and i'll just feel this chemical rush of depression that i can't switch on or off and the only thing that really lifts me out of it 
besides getting up off my ass and punching the bag, working out or something like that, getting the blood pumping would be to go crawl back into the bedroom, turn off the lights and pop on Inferno by Dario Argento. <laughs> and man, and I'm back, I'm, you know, I'm in a better place, you know. Since metal and horror fans are both consumed with and obsessive about the genres they love, there's no doubt that there are some of you out there who will be pissed at me for not talking about legendary metal filmed soundtracks, like the ACDC heavy Maximum Overdrive, or the Nine Songs Fastway, a band that featured Motorhead guitarist Fast Eddie Clark, wrote for Trick or Treat. And some would have loved to hear about the torrents of films in the 90s and early aughts, that were filled with influential metal music, some of which combined metal with genres like rap and electronica. And you might wish I addressed more of the cameos folks like Lemmy Kilmister, Ozzy Osbourne, Corey Taylor, and Randy Blythe have made over the years. Then there are all those metal-themed horror films like Heavy Metal, Deathgasm, American Satan, Rock and Roll Nightmare, The Gate, Turbulence 3 Heavy Metal, or even Lords of Chaos. And some true gorehounds might be upset that I didn't mention pseudo-snuff films, like Guinea Pig or the August Underground series. But that anger and frustration means you're passionate about what you love and stick up for your beliefs. And I respect that. So does Dee Snyder. I think that other fans of other genres, they don't, they're not invested like we are. Uh, the horror fans and the metal fans, and and you know, and being a, a a true horror fan, not a casual horror fan, or a true metal fan, it's a commitment. It's, it's you've got to sort of stand your ground, you know, and and, and a lot of times you find yourself sort of defending your position you know, for for being so into metal and horror. Uh, but that makes us even more, I think, uh, connected to it and less willing to give up those the amazing feeling we get from it. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein, executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.